everyone. Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, joined by the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. This is episode 174. This is the March 2022 research review, where we review research. Dr. Austin Baraki, what's going on, man? Hey, man. How you doing? I mean, you know, existing, recycling. by. Yeah, I'm I'm taking oxygen, converting it to carbon dioxide. Like, <laughs> well, doing the thing. I mean, it is worth pointing out. I think that there's probably a realignment in the in the universe happening right now, uh, because you appear to be getting stronger. Uh, oh yeah, and, uh, I I on the other hand have had uh, a bunch of life stressors happen recently, and and things are things are down a bit. But you know, sometimes that's just how this goes. So you're on the upswing. Yeah, just hey, you know, I don't want to wish ill upon anyone. I mean, that's that's, def- that's not true, but just like between you and I, I don't yeah. want to wish ill. On you. But if you just want to stay less strong for like another three weeks, <laughs> I'd be fine with that. Yeah, just, yeah, I don't think that'll be a problem. Yeah, okay. Yeah, no, it's it's. I feel like I'm almost. I don't, I wouldn't say I'm back to normal. I don't feel like that. Like yeah. seven oh five yesterday on a deadlift was heavy, and when I'm like feeling normally strong 705 is not like heavy yeah but your shoulder but stayed in and you also benched 180 dude. kilos and your shoulder stayed in <laughs> yeah yeah and i squatted 595 and my shoulders none the wiser but um anyway also speaking of people coming back from injuries people dealing mm-hmm. with adversity yeah i was so taken aback i used to wait did you watch the masters did you watch any of the masters no, I followed it peripherally, just knowing that he was somehow like ambulatory enough to go even participate in the thing, much less to make the cut. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. So if you guys don't know this, the Masters is uh, usually the first major golf championship each year. It's usually uh, sometime in April. Um, it was just held. Tiger Woods, uh, 46 years old, returned to competitive golf after an 18-month hiatus. Uh, and he wasn't just out like, you know, on vacation. The dude was in a very serious car accident in February of last year, had multiple comminuted open fractures of his lower right lower extremity requiring uh, a fasciotomy. So basically because of the comminuted open nature of the fractures, there was a, a concern that he was going to get compartment syndrome in his lower leg. So they had to go like cut open the uh, envelope covering the muscles. So, you know, the oozing of the blood from the bone and the muscles or whatever didn't like entrap his muscle tissue and cause necrosis. He had multiple pins, rods, titanium nails placed in his lower extremity and his ankle joint. And that was last February. And since then, he's been able to recover enough to play competitive golf at one of the most prestigious events in the world. And he made the cut. And oh, by the way, Walking around the golf course, that particular golf course is no picnic. So Augusta National is where it's held every year. I believe it's been held there since the 30s. This is the 86th Masters. So I don't, the math I think works out on that. Uh, It's 5.81 miles around the thing. 50 uh, uh, floors of elevation you got to walk. Oh, and by the way, you're playing golf in between these things. And you're you're just like on a a stroll, like Like you got to play golf, which so for him to do that four rounds in a row after that, 18 months, and he made the cut. That's I think that's impressive. Everyone's like, you think Tiger's going to win? I'm like, no, no. (laughs) I mean, and and it's not it's not because he's gotten worse. It's just he's rusty, right? Like competitive rust. It'd be like even if you had been doing a bunch of swimming. Like there's something to be said about actually competing 
I even right. think the same thing for power powerlifting, even if though powerlifting is probably like the least like, you know, competition history dependent sport. You could show up at a meet after not being in a meet for like four or five years and still potentially PR, but yeah. like being in that competitive groove, you just know more about how you're going to respond to attempt selection and like the meat nerves are like more controlled and stuff like that. You just have more recent experience, more recent history to kind of, you know, guide your path. But so I was impressed and I was more impressed that you sent me a text message being like, yo, Tiger Woods, what the. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big golf person, but definitely, you know, recognize how freakish of an accomplishment this is uh, also like second comeback <laughs> effectively for, you know, yeah. Uh, multiple back numerous substantial setbacks and things like that it's just you know that's what elite athletes can do i suppose <laughs> yeah i mean it, i will tell you that for me because uh, i did watch a lot of the coverage and this has been like a recurring theme in tiger's career like whenever he does get an injury the announcers perseverate on these injuries so flashback 2008 u.s open tory pines he had a broken leg and he's like out there walking and playing on a broken leg. And, and they like do extreme close-ups on the leg during a slow-mo golf swing. And they're like, see right there? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, or like when he had back surgery, they're like zoom in on his back. And you can't see things wearing a shirt, right? They're like, yeah. ooh, see that right there? <laughs> and they're just noceboing millions of viewers right, across right. the world. And they're like, yeah, sometimes I do twist my back. It, uh, it happens. <laughs> so I don't know. But yeah, that, that was kind of annoying to just to hear them keep going on and on about like the mechanical damage or like uh what how this is going to affect him in the future potentially and it's like i mean i could do without all that but let's just yeah let's just celebrate the return Respect. yeah yeah, yeah exactly. golf is better for having a minute all right we won't talk this is not a golf podcast i i you know if we get that audience i'll gladly talk about golf <laughs> <laughs> so yeah we'll, we'll wait for the feedback uh other announcements our app is live it's in the apple app store uh, if you're a green bubble person, hang tight. We're going to work, working on an app for you guys, for the Android folks. But if you're an Apple user, uh, yeah, go to the app store. You can download our app for free. You can do all of your templates. Once you log in, we'll auto-populate. If you have barbell medicine templates, if you want to use your own, do your own training program, you can log your stuff there. Uh, you can log body composition. You can log workout durations. You can log anything that's pertinent to exercise, uh, PRs, et cetera. It's all there. It's all free. Um, so check that out. We're also our latest update. I'm super pumped about all of our templates. You get a free week, the first week of each template is there. So people can like try it on for size. Sure. Uh, and I really think that's going to help folks figure out what they actually prefer. Cause we were like, Oh, I, I want to do hypertrophy templates. Like, cool. Well do one. Yeah. Oh, but not this one. I want to do this other one. Cool. So you can, you can try that on for size. So again, if you have, uh, if you're an Apple user, uh, you can ch get that app for free in the Apple App Store. Uh, link is in the description below. Um, also, April is the Load Women Month. Uh, Claire Zai and Alyssa Olmick are doing uh, their annual, second annual uh, fundraiser. Basically, the idea is you, you lift, deadlift something heavy. Hashtag load women when you post it on social media and they're raising money for women in science, technology, uh, engineering, math, and women in sport. So all their, all their money, uh, that they raise go to, uh, I think it's the Perry initiative, which is, uh, supports both of those aims. And also our, uh, barbell medicine, personal, uh, philanthropy, we're working with lift for life. We, uh, just doled out our first, uh, sort of. Uh, payment to them based on what we've raised from our t-shirt so far. And we 
have we printed a bunch of these t-shirts so we got more and so if you're interested in supporting a cool charity they help with the uh inner city youth in st louis missouri get them into uh exercise specifically weightlifting which is cool um i mean look other activities are great too but i'm obviously drawn to this lift for life uh we have more um t-shirts available those are that's also uh on our website you can follow the link in the description below get your get your marble medicine uh x lift for life collaboration and then the final announcement we got a new apparel drop we have our new competition tees. These things are basically built around you wearing a singlet. Potentially, you can see Barbell Medicine on the front, on the sleeve. It's stronger together on the rear collar. Uh, I actually wore this to the gym without a singlet because I'm not, you know, wearing a singlet in a gym. But um, which also was weird because yesterday when I wore that, there were four people in the gym with singlets, and I was like, "It's a, it's a, it's a Tuesday." It's like, meat week, baby. Yeah, I guess maybe. Yeah, <laughs> fair enough. I don't know. Uh, but anyway, so we have the, we have uh, new shirts that will be available this Friday, and and it gets better. International shipping will be live. So oh, if you live outside the United States, for that, huh? that's what I'm saying. If you live outside the United States and you need your barbell medicine fix, ooh, we got you covered. Yeah, it's a, a lot of technology involved and like coordinating shipping at a reasonable rate. And I don't pretend to know all the ins and outs, but this is a bigger project than I had originally estimated, uh, you know, thought it was going to be, but that's going to happen. So this Friday, new apparel drop, international shipping. If you're not subscribed to our newsletter, you wouldn't know about that unless you listen to our podcast. So my recommendation would be listen to this podcast and then also go to our website, sign up for the newsletter. You'll get dibs on the first drop, all that sort of stuff. Uh, Anything else? Any other announcements you think? Nothing I can think of at the moment. Oh, the last thing I will say, the last thing I will say has to do with our rehab templates. We are rehashing, revamping all of our rehab templates, the low back pain template, the knee rehab template, shoulder rehab template. got some other new ones coming your way. Those should be up uh, ideally within the next week. We just had to update them, make uh, clean up the PDFs, uh, make some better uh, supportive texts for you guys. And so those will be up soon. We, we know that you guys like them and uh, we want to make sure we give you have resources for you folks. So those will be in the store soon and on our app, obviously. Okay. This podcast, like I said, is the March 2022 Research Review Podcast. Austin and I sh- send each other all sorts of papers back and forth uh, over the course of the month. And then we kind of pick like the best ones and uh, we talk about them. So we're going to start out with sports psychology. Dun, dun, dun. I, I noticed you're not wearing a um, a blazer with elbow patches. I assume that would no. be the <laughs> <laughs> the psychologist's u- uh, uniform for this. <laughs> That's right. Yes, yes. You have no notepad. You have no blazer on. But uh, in any case, this paper is called Sports Psychology and Performance Meta Analyses, a, syst- a Systematic Review of the Literature. This was published uh, February 2022 by Lockbaum et al. They're out of Texas Tech. This is the first comprehensive systematic review of all published meta analyses on the topic. So effectively, there are meta analyses on specific sports psychology elements. So things like mindfulness, for example, or visualization and how that affects sports. This is like all potential, uh, sports psychology elements and how they impact performance and, and sports psychology has been around for a long time, like since 1900. I think the, the, the term originated in 1900 from la psychologie du sport, which is a French book 
And uh, that is as good as my French accent gets. Um, but yeah, and subsequent formation of national and international organizations, specialized journals, textbooks, etc. Uh, but we really we haven't done a podcast on this, and um, it's interesting to me that this is the first like comprehensive meta analysis on all of the sports psychology topics. Yeah, we'll, we'll we'll obviously dive into it a little bit, and I'll and I'll probably. Um go in a little different direction towards the end, because ultimately I would say that there are several reasons why this was not my favorite paper, (laughs) but I do respect the amount of work and really the sheer like breadth of this thing in terms of all the different things that they had to pull together uh, across all of sports psychology. I mean, when you look at like their meta analysis kind of method, how they went out their systematic review method, when they went into the research literature to find the papers that they wanted to pull into this, they had a, a whole bunch of search terms and like one of them, it says like we took sports performance and then we opened up a textbook of sports psychology and just like the title of each chapter, we just like paired those things and saw like what comes up in the research literature, which is like very broad <laughs> approach to this kind of a topic. Yeah, I assume the libra- librarian that they they hired to do this <laughs> was like, guys, are you kidding me <laughs> to pull all these titles? But um, so uh, basically they pulled all meta-analyses investigating a recognized sports psychology construct and sports performance that was published prior to January 31st, 2021. So 30 meta-analyses were included in this systematic review. Each meta-analysis contained three to 109 primary studies. Uh, And so what they did is they took each published meta-analysis and they did a quality rating of it. And then they uh, basically calculated the effect size of each sports psychology thing. So mindfulness, task cohesion, anxiety, stuff like that, and its effect on exercise performance. And they graded these or rated them based on effect size. So Cohen's what's D. the lo- Cohen's D. I know, but it's like it's like italicized and it's lowercase and you feel like yeah you do the same thing with p you do the same thing with a lot of things i know i just (laughs) want it to be something else i just want it to be something else you know sorry bro yeah and so how this works out there's like a small effect the numerical value is 0.2 medium effects 0.5 large effect size is 0.8 and a very large effect is 1.30 those are the cut points that they're using um so yeah 30 meta-analyses um, were basically included in this. It was published between 1983 and 2021. Um, interestingly, 18 of these meta-analyses were published after 2010. So like the bulk of this data is pretty recent. Um, and then most of the subjects identified as athletes, but it wasn't clear like what level that most of them were. A few of the studies uh, basically only used Olympic or professional athletes, so like elite competitors. Uh, some were classified as recreational athletes, but those are only a few studies again. Uh, and then others uh, included college volunteers or general adult exercisers. But it, the overwhelming majority were athletes, quote unquote, whatever, again, that means, because we don't really have a good way to identify post hoc, like, yeah, but what level of athlete are you? Um, so yeah, uh, Austin, you want to run through some of these results and then we kind of like give users a take home and then also talk about why you don't actually like this paper. (laughs) Yeah. Right. (laughs) Um, so they kind of, again, just so people have a sense uh, to, to reiterate what you said, they pulled 30 meta-analyses. And a meta-analysis, again, is like when you pull a whole bunch of studies together and uh, using a various statistical techniques, depending on the data that you're working with, can kind of pull things together to try to 
make the uh, to allow you to draw a more confident conclusion uh, uh, from from the results of pooling together a whole bunch of studies on a particular topic. So they pulled together thirty meta analyses, and again, each individual meta analysis itself was based on anywhere from three to one hundred and nine studies. So this is like, again, just an absolutely massive task and, and a very large amount of uh, information that they pulled together to, uh, to uh, pull this off. And so then when they mashed absolutely everything together, they, they, they reported that um, of the kind of psychological constructs, construct is the term that they were using to describe each of these individual things, whether it is a, an intervention like mindfulness training, for example, or if it's just a psychological, you know, uh, a trait like uh, depression or anxiety or, or, or something like that. So of the constructs that would be, you would expect to have positive effects on performance, uh, they found that in general, those things had a moderate effect size around a, a D of 0.5, although there was a ton of variation across the data. Um, of those, in contrast, that you would expect to have negative effects um, on performance, they ultimately showed a relatively small negative effect, so minus 0.2. But again, there was a bunch of variation here. And they did, you know, they tried to stratify this a few different ways, including by looking at, well, if we if we look more at the studies that we rated as being much higher quality, uh, did that change kind of the, the results that we saw? And they found that the higher quality studies they looked at tended to actually demonstrate larger effects, which is kind of interesting because it, in, in at least coming from the world of like biomedicine, uh, a lot of times uh, you see the opposite. You see the highest quality studies actually tend to show smaller effects on things and, and the, and the mm-hmm. kind of crappier papers tend to be the ones that like show massive effects on things. But so that was just kind of an interesting observation that I had here. Yeah, usually like the smaller studies, they either suffer, suffer from like some sort of selection bias or the or the group, the subject size, subject, sample size is relatively small. And so they have like these artificially large effect sizes and you're like, or the methodology is messed up in a way and it kind of like, they kind of got lucky or they were p-hacking and ran, ended up there's, getting a result. There's so many different ways. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, but it's, it, it, it was very interesting that the better, the higher quality studies actually showed. A higher effect. And then just to reiterate what Austin said, the positive effects seen from sports psychology seem to be larger in magnitude than the potential negative effects from some of these established sports psychology constructs. So like just going into, you know, when we're talking about these results, we would expect you to get a bigger benefit than, you know, some of the negative things. So the negative things definitely can reduce your performance, but not as much as the potential benefit. So that's kind of like cool. There's seems to be some actionable stuff here. So when reading this, Austin, uh, what were some of like the biggest the the sports psychology constructs, sports psychology entities that had the biggest positive effects? Yeah. So this uh, paper, I believe, was actually open access. So for anybody who wants to take a look at it, it's out there and uh, available through uh, through PLOS, I think, is where it was where it was published. Yep. And so the reason I mentioned that is because on uh, I think it's uh, figure two in this paper, they they generated again just in to to reiterate how large of a project this is a very impressive looking graph kind of stratifying all the different effects of every kind of psychological construct that they analyzed in this uh, in this study and so the top uh, uh, several ones uh, at the very top of figure 2 show kind of very so for example this top one it shows a very large effect size for mindfulness uh, and their their reported effect size was 1.35 um and 
so again, anytime I'm seeing something that looks really impressive or sounds too good to be true, I'm actually going to, you know, uh, if I have the time in, in this situation, I did have the time, I'm going to dig into it just a little bit more. And so I looked at where did this particular reported number come from? And this came from a meta-analysis where um, they looked at three studies of shooting and dart throwing performance. Um, and so just kind of off the bat, like a meta-analysis of three studies, uh, again, depending on what ultimate sample size you end up with it. But that's that's a, a, a topic or a subject area where I'm like, was this really ready for a meta-analysis to be done? <laughs> they had <laughs> three papers on it. And again, it's on shooting and dart throwing performance exclusively. That, that's what those that's what those were on. And so we look at mindfulness and, and it's um, you know defined as having this uh, approach to being aware of the present moment, experiencing it in an accepting way, non-judgmental way, not avoiding way, just being very aware of uh, kind of what you're feeling in the present moment and, and how that may be impacting you um, is is kind of the idea. And certainly I can see how that would play a role in the context of shooting and dart throwing performance. I'm just going to have a hard time saying this is a massive effect size across all sports and this can generalize to people elsewhere. Now, I've used some of these strategies with myself, with, with athletes in, in other contexts, but that's not based on saying, oh, this meta-analysis showed a really large effect size because, again, here it's just looking at shooting and dart-throwing performance. And so the uh, uh, generalizing that kind of thing, you have to be careful. Yeah. I mean, this reminds me, did you ever read The Inner Game of Tennis? No. I mean, there's a, there's some mindful stu- mindfulness stuff in there where you're you're effectively coached to be aware of what you're actually feeling. Yeah. And not instead of trying to like suppress anything that's potentially negative or any, you know, worries that you may have or even positive feelings that you may have, you're just experiencing them, accept them, incorporate that into like your present sort of mood. Uh, and, and that's okay. Right. Like, like, you know, it's, it's not uh, necessarily good or bad. It just, it's more of this neutral sort of response being like accepting of a particular uh, way that you're feeling uh, rather than like, I always have to be positive. Yeah. I always I have, I have to suppress all the negative <laughs> thoughts. Like, well, that's a non-starter because that's not gonna that's not possible. Um, so yeah, I, it, it would not surprise me that mindfulness has some positive effect size across many different sports. But yeah, the idea that you can generalize this stuff across every sport, all you know, every type of competitor, it's highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. Yeah. And and I now know now knowing that these meta analysis was done or met, multiple meta analyses were done on like. A, less than a handful of dart throwers or shooters. <laughs> I mean, I would have liked to see at least something else, like a team sport, for example, or like sure. uh, a strength power sport, you know, for example, yeah. if, uh, we're talking, this is the Barbell Medicine podcast. Where, you know, I don't know how many dart throwers, biathlon competitors, or like yeah. <laughs> competitive yeah. shooters or whatever we're, we're, we're reaching. But, but yeah, uh, that is an interesting uh, a sort of data analysis that you did where you went in and you're yeah. like, Oh, I wonder what studies are actually talking about. That's what I was curious about. I was like, man, where, where did, where did these results come from? You look at the, the, uh, the next one was this, uh, um, psychological construct called task cohesion. And that describes this is in the context of a, of a team sport. So it refers to the degree to which members of a team, uh, can remain united to achieve their shared, you know, performance goal. So effectively how, how tight the team is in working towards their particular goal. And this showed also a pretty large effect size in this meta analysis of 1.0. Um, this, uh, ultimately came from mostly correlational data, mm-hmm. which I found interesting. In other words, they found, 
a, a correlation or an association between task cohesion and sport performance, which kind of raises the question of like the the directionality here. In other words, like uh, that doesn't tell us that if we somehow do an intervention to improve uh, kind of the cohesion of the team, that that is necessarily going to improve sports performance. Or is it like if the team is kicking ass and doing well, then like, you know, they you guys start yeah. to you start to you start to get hyped and band together and, and you kind of get hot, so to speak, in, in, in the sports terminology. Just kind of an interesting thing, because these were not mostly interventions that were done, um, you know, and, and again, I would also be curious if you were to do some kind of an intervention to what extent you could even improve t- sports specific task cohesion in a team in any way other than them continuing to play their sport and like experiencing success. If you use some kind of non-specific technique to make, make, you know, like a, a team building exercise that is not actually your sport, how much is that going to actually translate to like field performance? I, I have no idea. <laughs> I remain skeptical <laughs> uh, un, until, you know, it's actually looked at. And so these kind of things you can see, like there's, I, I lost count actually of how many like psychological constructs they, they actually looked at on this thing. And each one, you know, they are stratified. There's some that have very large reported effect sizes, some very small. So other ones with the positive effects, self-efficacy, obviously anybody who's listened to any of our stuff knows we're fans of self-efficacy. Although again, I would kind of question to what extent can we directly, you know, cause large uh, improvements in individual self-efficacy, you know, through a sports psychology intervention. I don't know. Uh, Other things, um, looking at things like mental practice, pressure training, pressure training, describing like, again, putting putting the uh, individual who is uh, training in kind of more of a, a constrained, high-pressure environment. Um, interestingly, the, the pressure training one uh, involved uh, a meta-analysis uh, of 14 studies in sport, and four of them were in law enforcement training. So like that got pulled into this uh, somehow, which was kind of, <laughs> kind of interesting. So I guess like police training in a high-pressure situation got looked at here. The tactical athlete. Exactly. Uh, interesting. Did you, did you ever read the book... Uh, Either of Isserin's text, he's got like the intro to block periodization mm-hmm. and then his second. Oh, okay. Oh, so, maybe a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, so if you're curious on like programming books and, and the intro to block periodization by Vladimir Isserin, it's a good text. It's mostly to do with the, either team sports or endurance sports as far as like what is block periodization? How would you set it up? Um, things of that nature. But he talks about these like uh, high emotion, high pressure workouts where you would have them towards the end of a work, uh, end of a training block uh, near a test or peak the idea is to like get people uh prepared for the additional challenges of a workout where your performance actually matters should be like a test or competition and i've I've definitely used that in not only my own training but also some of my clients training where i'm like yo this is a day where i want you to if you're going to use ammonia let's go if you're going to do trap slaps this is the day if you're gonna (laughs) you know listen to metal or what do your thing um and, and, make, and it counts. It matters. If you got to wear your singlet to get like in your routine, do, do it. Um, the whole point is like that particular workout, actually the performance matters significantly. And so get hyped up, do your thing. And that kind of gets people at least used to the demands for an actual competition. Um, but yeah, so, you know, you're under pressure like David Bowie under pressure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the weird thing, the weirdest one on here is this quiet eye training. What, what the heck? There's a medium to large effect size. What is quiet eye training? I was like, <laughs> are my eyes loud? Are they saying yeah. things that I don't know? Like, what's the deal? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why it's called that. I actually was curious too. So I did just a cursory kind of uh, look into what this is. And so this phenomenon, uh, this kind of describes, um, let's say you have some sort of task uh, goal as, as part of your, your performance in sport. They've found that 
the eyes will lock onto a salient aspect of the goal, but you know, before you execute the task itself. So for example, you're going to like, you know, shoot a three pointer or something like that. Your eyes will lock on a very particular uh, uh, kind of uh, target uh, within a certain amount of time in like usually measured in like, uh, you know, a hundred milliseconds or something like that before mm-hmm. you actually execute the task. And so research has shown that this kind of quote unquote quiet eye of elite performers is significantly earlier and longer um, uh, than that of near elite or lower skilled performers. In other words, they will lock on to their target quicker and it will be there. It will be locked onto that target for longer compared to uh, uh, performers who are not of the same level, um, which is just kind of an interesting thing. The trainability of this, I, I don't entirely know, but that seems mm. to be something that is looked at in this kind of uh, sports psychology and neuroscience and sports performance research. Yeah, I do remember in Sports Gene where they were talking about baseball players, trying like professional baseball players trying to recall, like, how do they determine whether or not to swing at a pitch and like yeah, how to that swing was very at a pitch? Cool. And they like conf- they confabulate this you know story about how they end up dis- deciding. Um, but the best hitters were always looking at like the release point and the seams on the ball. And so not only like were they locking onto that earlier and longer, but they also had higher visual acuity and could like yeah. see it better. And so yep. all of their years of training have like clued them in to know like what's the baseball going to do and how to like coordinate their swing. Uh, I was curious. I was like, I wonder how you would do quiet eye training for powerlifting. Like, what do you <laughs> like? Do you pick the focus point where you're going to look at the lift? Like during the lift, is it you know yeah. some technical aspect? I don't know. I'd be curious to know if there is some some point there and how trainable it is. Yeah, I doubt it honestly, just because <laughs> <laughs> just because the eyes don't need to be locked onto the actual like the barbell to, to do your thing. I don't know. It is an interesting <laughs> yeah. kind of thing to think about. And w- what about the, what about the negative effects? Like what things actually seem to move the needle downwards? People will generally not be surprised by most of these things like mood disturbances and depression tend to have large negative effect sizes, uh, report self-reported kind of like tension or confusion or anxiety. Um, although anxiety is an interesting one. Anxiety, it, it kind of, um, is, it may have a little bit more of like a, a U shaped relationship with performance. In other words, there may be like a sweet spot of how much anxiety you should have, um, to be performing well, not too little and not too much. Maybe if it's too little and, uh, yeah. you know, it, it may reflect, uh, that you're not adequately aroused for, <laughs> for the task in, yeah. in some way. I mean, I think most people, um, uh, uh, you know, even like in our powerlifting world, you can have done many powerlifting meets. And, uh, if you are really into what you're doing and motivated and, 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 um, and you're excited, you're still going to go into your meat and you're going to have just a, just a touch of anxiety in your stomach before you hit that first squat until you're like firmly on the board. I don't think that's a feeling that ever fully goes away. Um, if it ever does kind of completely fully go away, then, uh, uh you know, maybe that's uh, falling off one end of the, of the U-shaped curve. And then of course, if you're an emotional wreck at the other side, at the, at the other end, and you, you can't even hit your first because you're just like shaking with, with fear, then that's not ideal either. So, um, there's again, a bunch that had these kind of negative relationships. And, and, and again, most of them are not surprising. <laughs> okay. So, all right, take home for the listeners. So one, you didn't like it. Why didn't you like it? So uh, I did appreciate the scope and breadth, but I think the scope and breadth is also the same reason I 
did not. Uh, it's also a criticism. It's almost like a too broad of a thing of a, of a, of a work to provide um, specific recommendations to a, an individual in a particular sport. And, and that's just because of the sheer amount of limitations that stack up in a study of this magnitude and scope. So again, they pulled meta-analyses across all sorts of things. There are variables in these different meta-analyses of individual studies there's variation in the type of sport that was looked at, an individual sport or a team sport. There's variation in the performance measure. Is this something that the person themselves was was uh, uh, doing? Or is it like a team effort and the outcome was like victory or defeat? Uh, is it, you know, variation in the duration of the task, variation in the level of competition, you know, all the way up to elite and down to recreational? Um, and, and furthermore, there's tons of other limitations in this kind of data itself. So for example, let's say that you take a group of elite athletes and maybe many of them already naturally do these kind of strategies, uh, your ability to detect an effect of these kind of interventions is going to be muted, right? It's going to be muffled a little bit. Or how do you adequately uh, generate a control group in, in this kind of a situation? Also, there's tons of issues with that as well. And so I think, you know, the conclusion that I would draw from this is that there are tons of sports psychology techniques that may have benefit for sports performance. How much further I'm willing to like draw confident conclusions beyond that is, is, is pretty, pretty tough just because I'm not, uh, based on these results, willing to say, oh, mindfulness overwhelmingly is like the most important psychological, you know, sports psychology intervention that you can do because it reported this large effect size. Because again, that was drawn from some darts and, and, and shooters that may not be you. And furthermore, who am I to say that you as an individual may not be somebody who responds way better to one of these other things to self-talk or to visualization over mindfulness or to, uh, um, you know, pressure training or something like that. And so, you know, I would encourage people who are interested in, you know, improving their sports performance, definitely to in, look into and experiment with and try a variety of these things or get a, get a coach or, or if you are struggling with your performance, a, an actual sports psychologist who can help you work through these kind of things. Um, but I have a hard time, you know, kind of making specific recommendations to people based on like the hierarchy of effects that were generated in this mm -hmm. paper, knowing that, Hey, you may not be a dart thrower and, and you're uh, kind of an individual person who may respond better to something else. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's interesting that this is again, like one of the first major papers that I've seen where they're, Hey, here's what we know at the moment. Well, yeah. Like, what here's is literally everything. <laughs> yeah. Which, so again, the scope is huge. And I, I think it's interesting to just read about and and sort of expand the my fund of knowledge on okay here are all the sports psychology constructs that have been studied and yeah. here's what we know and then the next step then is more randomized controlled trials like intervention studies where they do, you know do some sort of um, sports psychology intervention and then see what happens on the other end with a meaningful outcome and meaningful outcome for me uh, as a practitioner is going to be probably not like did the team win or lose. Because I think that depends on a whole bunch of other stuff. Talent, who showed up, yeah. <laughs> who showed up. Yeah, exactly. All sorts of things that are outside the control here. But more like, does strength go up? Do people have a lower RPE? Are people able you – know, less injuries or better, you know, subjective ratings of performance? Something yeah. like that would be more, I think, useful to, as far as like start, starting to recommend specific, you know, sports psychology interventions. And, yeah. but, I, but I do think this kind of opens the door for – further study and bringing awareness to, yeah, this is going on. 
and uh, we we're we're learning more about this. And it does seem like we're headed that way. Again, eighteen of these thirty meta analyses has been have been published since two thousand ten. So it yeah. seems like we're just scratching the surface. Yep, agree, agree. Cool. All right. Now on to something a little bit more tangible. We're going to talk about muscle mass, baby. This paper, which I love, this is my favorite paper of this particular. Oh, that's good. I'll let you talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so th- this paper is titled Longing for a Longitudinal Proxy. Great name. Acutely measured surface EMG amplitude is not a validated predictor of muscle hypertrophy. So this is by Andrew Vygotsky and and crew. This is published in the Sports Medicine Journal, February 2022. Uh, This is basically a follow-up article about the relationship between surface electromyography values and practical implications. They had a 2018 paper that I I discussed in our bodybuilding templates text, our hypertrophy templates text, and other podcasts where basically talk about like, what is the predictive value of the surface EMG reading and like hypertrophy potential? Because people say, oh, this exercise has a higher surface EMG or EMG uh, value. So that's going to drive more hypertrophy. So, okay, what is EMG? EMG, surface electromyography, which we'll just call it EMG from now on, is a tool used to measure muscle excitation based on changes in the electrical activity of the muscle fiber. Greater EMG amplitude tends to correlate uh, with greater motor unit recruitment, although the relationship between EMG and performance outcomes, like hypertrophy, is complicated. Uh, So just to clarify that a bit further, we say that surface uh, electromyography or EMG measures muscle ex- excitation. What is that? That is the electric signal that causes calcium to be released from the sarcoplasm of the muscle to enable activation. What is muscle activation? Muscle activation is the binding of calcium to troponin, so protein hooked on to the muscle, uh, that uh, basically allows it to form cross bridges between actin and myosin. This cross bridge attachment initiates a sequence that produces force, the power stroke, if you've taken an exercise physiology course. Uh, And then subsequently, muscle state changes are uh, dependent on this muscle activation and subsequent cross bridge attachment. So to distill all that down, EMG is measuring muscle excitation. It is not measuring muscle activation. Muscle activation is a secondary step we think happens afterwards uh, and subsequently changes the muscle state, allowing force production. Okay. So this paper focuses on the relationship between EMG values and hypertrophy based on the following premises, which these, those last definitions are going to come in handy, that surface EMG values reflect muscular excitation. Muscular excitation is directly related to muscle state changes and mus- uh, changes in the muscle state drive hypertrophy. Thus, EMG values predict hypertrophy. The authors start this out with a bomb. They say, <laughs> we argue that all of these premises are weak rendering the conclusion that uh, EMG amplitudes can be used to predict hypertrophy uh, adaptations tenuous. Whoa. Okay, so that's where they're starting from. So premise number one, do do surface EMG values really correlate well to muscle excitation? Uh, There's a few problems with that. So one is that uh, surface EMG values can be altered by the muscle's shape or architecture uh, even at a similar uh, excitation level. So basically, if you are measuring EMG values throughout a contraction and the muscle itself is changing shape or the muscle uh, architecture or changing uh, positions um, due to this dynamic contraction, the EMG values are going to be all over the place, even if it's the same level of excitation. So you're like, 
okay, that doesn't sound good because you're basically, again, trying to get a consistent EMG value to say, oh yeah, this level of muscle excitation correlates well with something. And if it's changing all the time due to independent, these other variables, then you're like, I don't like that. Uh, so yeah, EMG values collected from different exercises may not accurately reflect differences in excitation uh, for the purposes of comparison. So when you're like, oh, a leg press activates the quadriceps this much or has this much uh, muscle excitation compared to a squat, you're comparing apples to oranges, which you can do, but but as far <laughs> as what to do with that comparison, we, we don't know. Um, premise number two. Muscle excitation is directly related to state changes in the muscle. So that actual muscle activation and cross bridge formation and force production. So again, muscle excitation is basically that electric signal that we're measuring and that's supposed to uh, lead to calcium release. This can actually be decoupled during dynamic contractions. So when you have a concentric muscle shortening or eccentric muscle lengthening, when you have fatigue that occurs during a set or between sets or both, all of those things can decouple this relationship meaning that you're going to see different muscle excitation values, different EMGs, even if even if the muscles are actually getting the same stimulus. So that's why a lot of the best studies done on EMG are done using non-fatiguing sort of uh, exercises. So people aren't going to failure. Um, people aren't getting, you know, really high, uh, close uh, to failure. There is, uh, and they tend to be isometric. So the muscle stays the same length. Um, but that doesn't really tell you much about like a dynamic exercise, like a squat, a deadlift, leg press, biceps curl, etc. cetera. Um, okay. Premise number three, that the muscle state changes drive hypertrophy. This relationship also appears to be weak. So for example, glycogen depletion is a marker of uh, prior muscle activation. This is only weakly associated with muscle protein synthesis markers. So we have these muscle state changes that we know have happened, but that's only weakly associated with muscle protein synthesis. The relationship between muscle protein synthesis and hypertrophy is probably reasonable, but the actual muscle state changes that like come before the muscle protein synthesis signal don't necessarily correlate with muscle protein synthesis. So I want to be clear on this. No one's saying that muscle protein synthesis isn't related to hypertrophy. That is absolutely not what they're saying. But the things that come before muscle protein synthesis, like muscular excitation and activation, do not seem to reliably predict muscle protein synthesis. And so if we're not even able to predict muscle protein synthesis from these things, how in the hell are we going to pre uh, predict muscular hypertrophy? Especially, especially long-term, like you're not, not just predicting two steps away, but two steps away and then extrapolating that long-term, which ain't going to happen. Yeah. Also, by the way, there's no direct evidence showing that surface EMG predicts hypertrophy. So what do the authors think? They're the indirect evidence, because we don't have any direct evidence here indicates inconsistent relationships. So in support of the uh, relationship between surface EMG values and hypertrophy, uh, multi-joint movements have low, tend to have low uh, surface EMG values. So that'd be like a squat and its uh, surface EMG values on the quadriceps uh, compared to leg extension. So isolated uh, single joint movement has tends to have high EMG values. And there's more growth in the high surface EMG value uh, exercise, the leg extensions on the quadriceps compared to squats, which I know people are listening to. They're like, are you saying that leg extensions can cause more quadriceps growth than squats? Yes, that is exactly what I just said. Okay. Uh, in contrast, in contrast, during different types of contractions or different levels of fatigue at different muscle lengths, even within that 
sort of uh, analysis, there's no clear prediction of hypertrophy by surface EMG. So for example, during a uh, high load versus low load training using leg extensions, the higher loads, so heavier weights have higher surface EMG throughout the set. Yay. Hooray. EMG levels are high. Whereas lower loads, light weights have lower surface EMG values. No, the, the EMG levels dropped. But importantly, at the end of the eight or 12 week protocol, that these two studies looked at, uh, they have the same amount of growth. And it's like, what? It's like, yeah, that's what this whole paper is about. That surface EMG values don't seem to predict, reliably predict hypertrophy. In the Even in the short term, eight to 12 weeks, what do you think is going to be long term? I think the d- data is probably going to be even noisier. And again, just to reiterate, there's no direct evidence between surface EMG values and longitudinal outcomes like hypertrophy long term at a year, two years, three years or whatever. So I think where this where I fall on this is I, I think it's reasonable to use EMG values to sort of like tell you if an exercise is you know, training the muscles that you're targeting. I think that's reasonable. Meaning that if you're trying to train your biceps, right, and you read a study that shows that bench press has minimal activation, minimal excitation uh, based on EMG values of the biceps, you do not predict that the biceps are likely to grow. Okay. But I, I think what you're seeing there is not that surface EMG values are super, super useful at predicting hypertrophy. Uh, just like as far as like just the ap- ap- absolute values, but rather the difference in potential values from a bench press compared to a biceps curl are likely very large, like orders of magnitude different rather than like a small difference. And so if you haven't read the paper uh, about uh, bar placement in the squat in that particular uh uh, post, I write about the difference in EMG values on a quadriceps, hamstrings, lower back, uh, and a front squat versus a back squat. And there are slight differences, slight differences. We're talking like five, 10, very, these are very small. You're like five or 10, what? And like, I don't know. I don't remember the unit, but that's small, <laughs> <laughs> but that's small. And, and so I think if you have a small, rel- relatively small difference in EMG amplitude, I would not predict any difference in hypertrophy. But if the difference is like 100, you know, or 200 or 300, all that's telling me is that one exercise really isn't actually working this muscle at all. And the other exercise is to some point. And so then if I had to like put, play, put my money on like which one's going to drive hypertrophy, I'm picking the one that actually loads the muscle. But I can't tell you like high bar is better than front squats or vice versa for quad hypertrophy. And and I guess the, the my comment there would be that for those kind of um, – exercise options that have such drastic differences between them. Mm-hmm. I question the need for EMG to tell you that, that one of I'm, them is working. <laughs> you know, you yeah. don't, you didn't need EMG to tell you that a bicep curl is going to train your bicep better than something that doesn't involve the bicep. Did you need to shove electrodes into your muscles to like, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, it's just, it's one of those things. It's like people will uh, make these reductionist sort of arguments all the way through this sort of uh, academic and then non-academic sort of strength and conditioning field. In the academic setting, they'll be like, yeah, this exercise has higher EMG values for the hip thrust compared to the squat when we talk about like glute max training or whatever. And we're like, so what? 
let's talk about muscle cross-sectional area at the end of 12 to 16 weeks. And if there's a big difference that's reliably seen across different populations, like then you might be onto something, but I don't give a shit about EMG values. Okay. Uh, and, but in the non-academic setting, people say, yeah, see, you lift more weight with the low bar squat compared to the high bar squat. So it's training your hamstrings more because it's heavier. And it's like, what? It's just a different exercise at different muscle lengths, at different joint angles where you have one, you have a, a better mechanical advantage than the other. That's literally it. You're not training the hamstrings to be stronger or develop, you know, signaling more hypertrophy. You're not doing any of that stuff. You've just reduced it down to something that fits your bias. You know, what's interesting. This is completely an aside and something that just came into mind and only because uh, of, of my, my day job. Um, so I look at EKGs a lot and mm -hmm. EKGs are kind of uh, electrodes on the surface of the skin that are measuring ele electrical activity of the heart as it, uh, as it gets uh, um, depolarized and uh, contracts. And I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, is there some kind of a, an analogy here? And it's like, you could give me two different EKGs from two different people's hearts and just looking at the uh, amplitude, for example, of the waves on their EKGs, I could not tell you whose heart is uh, squeezing harder or working harder, uh, mm -hmm. which is just kind of an interesting, you know, it, it's like for when I, when I think about it from that perspective, assuming that some of the uh, baked in assumptions there hold about the similarity between these two uh, ways of looking at things. Um, it seems perfectly obvious <laughs> that, uh, that it's not telling you what you think. Um, when, when I look at, uh, you know, people's EKGs and it doesn't tell you anything about how hard their heart is squeezing. <laughs> so it's yeah. kind of interesting. Yeah. I, like I said, I think EMG values can be useful in the research. Like if we get some direct evidence supporting, you know, once you achieved this minimum threshold of difference, you're likely to see some, you're likely to predict some sort of hypertrophy difference. And at that point, it, you don't need to do this on each individual, but you would say, all right, look, the data clearly shows that the EMG values are much, much higher with the RDL compared to a dead, regular deadlift for hamstrings. And you're like, okay, cool. So maybe if we're really targeting hamstring hypertrophy, then we do RDLs, but we don't have that data. And my prediction would be that the EMG values are so similar that this is, becomes a twud, a time wasted on useless detail. And yeah. it's like, so people like really geeking out on EMG stuff and small differences. I'm like, I don't really know what this means and neither do you because the data is not there. It's just like people saying, well, you can lift more weight with this particular variation. Isn't that better? It's like better for what? Better for yeah. performance in that particular exercise, but not better like overall for every potential outcome. Like, okay. Anyway, that's, it was my favorite one mainly because like I've been, into the EMG scene for for a bit now, and I'm just like, oh, Vygotsky wrote another thing. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So we'll link. We'll link. He's to a he's a genius. I think. Yeah, I think he's an EMG savant. Yeah, that's what I would say. <laughs> I will post the twenty. I'll put the 2018 paper and this latest uh, clarification article uh, in the description below. It was interesting because they they at the like opening paragraph, they were like, yeah, so we wrote this thing in 2018. And I think that some of the concerns that we raised were minimized based on how we wrote it. So uh, we're going hard in the paint on this one. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to make sure that you guys know that we don't think that EMG is a you know great way to predict muscular hypertrophy, unless maybe the values are so significantly different that you know a really low value just shows you're not really training the muscle. So yeah. okay, last paper. This is on diabetes. 
The paper's titled The Effective Resistance Training on Hemoglobin A1C in Adults with Type 2 Diabetes Mellitus and the Moderating Effect of Changes in Muscular Strength, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. This was published in the British Medical Journal, Open Diabetes Research and Care by an Australian research group led by Dr. Anna Jansen. This was uh, from last month, March 2022. So what is type 2 diabetes? Type 2 diabetes is characterized by hyperglycemia, so elevated blood sugar, insulin resistance, meaning you need more insulin. That's a peptide hormone produced by your pancreas, uh, and you need more of it to do the same things it used to do because you are resistant to it. And also a relative impairment in insulin secretion. The beta cells either get tuckered out or can't produce enough insulin for you to maintain your normal blood sugar. So that's type 2 diabetes in a, a nutshell. The diagnostic criteria rely... Uh, solely, usually on measures of high blood sugars. Uh, but type 2 diabetes is a uh, heterogeneous disease with patients experiencing varying contributions of defective insulin secretion and insulin action, like insulin resistance. Uh, like I said, insulin resistance plays an important role in the development of other abnormalities and complications of type 2 diabetes. Uh, type 2 diabetes accounts for 85 to 90% of diabetes case- cases globally. Uh, it's typically very responsive to lifestyle changes, especially exercise and dietary pattern changes. Um, the current exercise guidelines, if you were curious, for individuals with type 2 diabetes are very similar to the physical activity guidelines for adults. So twice weekly resistance training and get your conditioning in, whether it's uh, vigorous or moderate to vigorous uh, intensity activity. Uh, and so anyway, this paper measured hemoglobin A1C, which is also called glycated hemoglobin. This is used to estimate blood sugar values over time, uh, usually about 120 days. Um, glycated hemoglobin actually means like glu- glucose or sugar that's bonded to the hemoglobin. And so your red blood cells are floating around the bloodstream and sugar is also in the bloodstream. And if your blood sugar is high, more of it's going to stick. And so then you're going to get a higher hemoglobin A1C value than if your blood sugar was lower. Uh, and this all depends on you having like a normal lifespan of a red blood cell. So if you have any sort of like red blood cell formation or destruction disorder, if you're on dialysis, if you have diseases like HIV, if you've got anything like that, you can, you know, the blood cells aren't lasting that long. And so this hemoglobin A1C value is not as useful. But in any case, we use this marker, hemoglobin A1C, to diagnose, monitor, and guide therapy for type 2 diabetes. A normal A1C value is less than 5.7%. So that means five. Uh, you're, th- that tells you how much sugar is actually bound to the red blood cell. Uh, type 2 diabetes, the A1C is higher than 6.5%. Um, and usually if you see that on a blood test, if you were screening somebody for type 2 diabetes and their A1C level was 6.6, per, uh, for example, you would usually do a follow-up test. Uh, unless you already had one. So like a really abnormal fasting blood sugar, another A1C or something else. Um, and then people are going to, you know, they're, they're listening to this and they're like, well, what about prediabetes? That's what's in the middle. If normal is less than 5.7 and type 2 diabetes is above 6.5, you know what's in the middle? Prediabetes. That just means that you're on track towards type 2 diabetes because you have high blood sugar and the insulin uh, resistance is elevating. Okay. So uh, anyway, the A1C goals uh, for treatment are individualized based on the person's age, other complications, life expectancy, et cetera. Basically, the younger and healthier the person is, uh, they're going to have lower goals. So get get them back to 5.7% or less than 6. Uh, and it, if they're older, have more complications, you may have a looser uh, sort of uh uh, A1C goal. Austin, what's the what's the highest A1C that you can recall that you've ever seen in the hospital? 
Oh, uh, probably on the order of like 16 or 18%, something like that. So really high. (laughs) That's very high. Yeah. So, so A1C basically correlates to the, uh, again, the love, the blood sugar level, average blood sugar level for the last 120 days. So if, if someone's got an A1C level of 12, we'll say, which is double already very high. Yeah. (laughs) That means their blood sugar on average was almost 300, almost 300 for 120 days. That means it was (laughs) higher than that. You know, it's uh, yeah, for at least yeah. ha- about half the time, um, whereas normal blood sugar is less than 100. So in any case, this study was a, uh, was a meta-analysis to see how does resistance training affect blood sugar levels. And the way that they're measuring that is by hemoglobin A1C and how that changed over time. And there was a secondary analysis uh, regarding did people who gained more strength, did they have a better improvement in their A1C than those just participating? So like, was there a moderating effect of like gains made during resistance training? Uh, so Austin, just, I'll, I'll just kick it to you. Did you like this study from the jump or, or no? Like, were you, uh, what were your thoughts when you were reading through this paper? Yeah, my initial thoughts were, well, I certainly like that we're looking at strength training uh, as a way to address a very common medical problem. Um, I think that we both kind of have our gut sense of what it was likely to show in that, um, you know, resistance training. Uh, we, we could even, if we wanted to go mechanistic on this, and, and you know, we've talked about how resistance exercise can, you know, improve insulin sensitivity, can upregulate these receptors that will suck glucose, uh, blood sugar out of the blood without the need for insulin. Um, and so we would predict that it's going to have a beneficial effect. Uh, and, and sure enough, you know, it, it did show a, a beneficial effect. The, I do have some caveats though, with some of the, the conclusion, which I'll, I guess I'll leave as a little bit of a cliffhanger. If you want to talk about Ooh, some of yeah. what, some of what they actually saw. Sure. Yeah. So first, all these studies included adults that were 18 and over. They all measured A1C because, again, that was that was the metric they're looking at. They were all randomized controlled trials and they only used resistance training as the intervention. So they and none of these studies were they like, oh, yeah, resistance training and aerobic training. Um, so there were 26 studies total. In 20 of them, they pitted resistance training versus no training at all. And in 13 of them, they also either had a separate group or only looked at uh, resistance training versus aerobic training. Uh, in total, there are about 1,500 people spanning multiple countries. The shortest study was eight weeks. The longest study was 14 months. Um, most of them included both men and women, all, except for three were just men only. And the retention rate was 69 to 100%, so pretty, pretty decent adherence there. The resistance training protocols, uh, I, w- I looked at a few of the studies. They were, they were okay. Uh, usually each session had between four to 12 exercises, most used machines or free weights, uh, except for three studies that were elastic bands only. I immediately was like, why are these here? But okay. <laughs> and the average, I did, frequency- I did see, uh, I did see some of the intensities cause I did the same thing. And like a fair number of them were like, you know, in the, at least 60% of one yeah. RM and, and, you know, obviously caveats aside of like, okay, it's probably lower than that because of, I doubt they took them to a true one RM, but most of them started in the 60 ish range, maybe 70 ish range, and then increased, um, some as high as 80, 90. And then I think one said it took, we trained them all the way up to hundred percent one RM. Yeah. I'm like, no, you, no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah. 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 I was like, dang, they're getting some games. <laughs> yeah. Uh, on average, they were training two to three days a week. Um, and then the secondary analysis, which again was, was they were trying to see, did those who gained more strength than other folks, did they actually see a bigger improvement, a uh, greater lowering effect uh, on their A1C? That was 12 studies uh, that were included. 
um, where they they actually looked at that. So the results, there was lo and behold, there was a significant effect of resistance training on hemoglobin A1C. It lowered it on average by about 0.4%. Uh, I think it's 0.390 exactly, which there were two previous meta-analyses published on this, and they that like was right smack dab in the center of what they reported previously. So no surprise, uh, significant effect of resistance training on A1C. Um, the interesting thing was the stronger the people got, it seemed like they had a better lowering effect. And um, I'm curious to hear what you have to think about this. My my thought was that if you're getting stronger, you're seeing more adaptations from the training, which by definition means that the training is more uh, well-suited for you, which I don't know the mechanism involved like that makes it more well-suited, you know, versus uh, less well-suited. But my thinking is that if it's meeting you where you're at, and giving you the correct dose and formulation of training stress, it is no surprise to me that that is creating greater adaptations, both fitness and health related. Uh, as far as why that is the case, I would suspect there may be a greater gain in lean body mass, for example. And lean body mass, we know, is a big sponge for blood sugar. We also, you know, it's a reservoir as well. So, more lean body mass, that would be better. Uh, And then maybe if you're seeing better gains, maybe uh, you're actually using more sugar uh, from your blood during the training session. I don't don't know, you're pushing harder or something like that. I I can't quite be sure. I'm just trying to think of plausible mechanisms. So you could gain more lean body mass, you could use more sugar. um, Or if the training stress is better matched to you, then perhaps maybe you don't have uh, uh, sort of uh, resultant hyperglycemia responses due to an added stress response. Uh, for example, uh, perhaps uh, it, you are more likely to engage in some sort of dietary pattern change concomitantly. You know, and you're like, I'm seeing great gains in the gym. I got to support these with a better dietary pattern. I don't know, but I, 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 I couldn't quite put my finger on like what I, what I'm chalking this up to. Um, any, any thoughts on that? Like why did the people who get getting stronger see a better, a better result? Yeah. Yeah, I think I think this is kind of where, um, depending on how somebody wants to spin the conclusion, this is how where I might have a little bit of an issue with the paper. If somebody Ooh, wants yeah. to say it is the strength that is mediating the improvement in blood sugar, sure. I would be skeptical of that, right? Because then my question is like, let's say we, let's say we just could we just put them on anabolic steroids and, and you know perhaps well, some yep. that generate equivalent strength? Would we expect the same thing, or is there something different about this particular intervention? And so honestly, the way I'm looking at this is, is somewhat similar to you. Um, you, you were trying to pin down like a mechanism why this would happen. And, and it seems to me that you're asking the same question of like, let's say that we took a bunch of people, put them on these resistance training programs, and then we saw, you know, variation among them in their strength outcome or in how much muscle mass they gain. This is a topic we've talked about a ton before, the huge range of like individual variation in response to a given training program, right? You're asking the same question. Why do some people get stronger on a given program and some not? Why do some get more muscle mass on a, on, on a given program and some less? There are tons of variables that probably mediate this kind of individual variation, some being genetic, some being environmental, some being, you know, whatever, all kinds of, all kinds of factors that can play into this. And so I'm kind of viewing this like blood sugar A1C improvement as another yet and just uh, another outcome um like an, another adaptive outcome here in this study just like strength and just like hypertrophy 
to where, yeah, the people who gained more strength had more lowering of blood sugar, probably because that's just a marker of people who responded well to the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and for those who are non-responders to the program, uh, in terms of not getting stronger, for whatever reason, it could be that it was, again, poorly matched to them, could be their genetic makeup as it related to that particular program, could have been that the program was not appropriately dosed, it was too low intensity. I saw one study where it was like two sets of 15 at 50% was the intervention. Um, that's probably going to do something for some people, uh, but you know, may not do anything for some people, the resistant, the elastic band exercise that may not be dosed enough, you know, um, you know, uh, so we know that there are situations where the intensity does have a bearing on adaptive outcomes and strength is one of those things. Uh, bone mass is probably another one of those things. Um, and so I wouldn't be surprised similarly, if, if bone mass was another outcome in this study that those who gained more strength had more improvements in their bone mass, similar, just Uh like who are the people it's basically a marker for a responder to that training program. Um, and the people who had less strength and less lowering of blood sugar were less responsive to that training program. Not to say they're non-responders to exercise in general, because we don't think that people are uh, rather they just needed a, yeah, they just needed a different program, uh, uh, or, uh, a, um, more training volume or something to that effect. Um, so that's kind of how I view this conclusion is not that if you want to get your blood sugar down, you have to get as strong as humanly possible, rather just like we need to find a program that like you respond well to that you can demonstrate fitness adaptations to. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I think it's likely that there are shared mechanisms, you know, and and whether that be the, you know, the muscle, uh, uh, you know, the myokines, but the hormones released from muscle, uh, whether, whether that be, growth factors, whether it be mediated by, you know, actual glucose use could be any or all of those things and additional other things we're not really bringing up. Um, but yeah, it would not surprise me to, to, to see or learn of, um, yeah, additional health benefits that are, they're not fitness adaptations, they're health related adaptations that co-occur once you're, you know, demonstrating these fitness, the fitness adaptations. I think that's likely. Yeah. And I would just point out that the distinction between fitness adaptation and health adaptation is arbitrary. Like we kind of made that up. It's just like the whole organism is adapting to this, to this stimulus, you know? Yeah. Well, in the programming text, as I've been working on these like fitness adaptations, I I lump them all together under the same umbrella. Just the adaptation exercise induced adaptations can be of the, you know, pure health variety, like blood pressure lowering effect, for example, uh, increased bone mass, Although then you would say, well, are we talking about like increased bone mineral density, like systemically, or are we talking about like localized adaptations due to the type of stress you're putting on? So it kind of gets, it gets murky. So yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah. It's just arbitrary. Uh, The last interesting thing I'll point out here. So, you know, people out there and, and they're, and they're, it's coming from a place of love, but if they, if they learn of a, uh, someone that they know or is close to them that they've been recently diagnosed with type two diabetes or pre-diabetes, the initial like knee jerk thing is you just, you got to clean up your diet and start exercising. You got to, and, and I don't know that either of us would disagree with like that being a, uh, or being behavior changes that we want the person to engage in, particularly if they're not right now, if they're insufficiently active and their dietary pattern is not health promoting. Yes. We want them to get there. 110%, seven, you know, 24, seven that we're, we're, we're preaching that message. However, the A1C lowering effect was only, you know, 0.390. That means if someone's got an A1C of seven, maybe they're going down to six, you know, 6.6 on average. It, it's, it's not enough. It's not enough. It, you know, some people that may be their clinical target and we're like, cool, you just did that, but it's not, it's not 
enough. And I wouldn't just say, hey, this person's got diabetes because they're not exercising and exercise is going to be a panacea, uh, like lifting weights. All you got to do is lift weights and you'll be good. It's definitely part of the part of the solution. And I definitely want people to do it, but I, I would not view exercise, specifically resistance training as like this. Yep. If you do this, you're going to be good. You'll be better. You will be better. Like I, I'm pretty confident in saying that, but I, I don't want people to think of uh, resistance training or like diabetes as like a deficiency of resistance training. Cause that's, that's not what it is. Yeah, I agree. It will certainly help, but I mean, you're, you're, you're right that if somebody comes in and their, their initial A1C is nine or 10, which is not unusual. Um, I am going to recommend aggressive interventions with respect to lifestyle and the, the exercise uh, side of things. Um, but, uh, there are going to be medications involved in that. And there are certain situations where if they come in and they present early enough, um, meaning before their pancreas has sort of kind of died out with, with years of uncontrolled diabetes, if they, if they show up early enough with this and you, you treat it aggressively enough, both with lifestyle and combination medication treatments up front, um, that you can, you know, you can achieve remission in the sense that those patients may be able to, um, basically eliminate as much of the accumulated fat that's uh, stored in the liver that causes a ton of problems in the, in the pancreas itself that causes a ton of problems. They can restore pretty normal blood sugar regulation. This is not everybody. This is arguably not even most people, but it is possible, um, to the point where they can get to that point of remission and potentially in some situations, either decrease the amount of medicine they need or come off of medicines long term, but that requires a pretty drastic upfront aggressive intervention. Um, and more often, I find myself having conversations with patients who may get, achieve may get this diagnosis, and they and they are really reluctant to use any medicines, and they will say, "I want to do all lifestyle upfront." I'm like, "Okay, just so that you know, we have a good, uh, we we have a shared understanding here is that this is." Uh, uh, something that will probably prolong the process. And um, there's not a guarantee that you'll be able to get as good of uh, uh, improvements compared to combination of lifestyle and medications with the option of potentially, you know, reducing your need for medications in the future, the more quickly we get this under control now. And so that's often the direction I might steer the conversation. But sometimes patients just say, I'm going to, they still have this, it's a deep cultural kind of baked in thing of like, doing it quote by myself, or, um, you know, things like that, that um, I think ultimately makes this take longer than it needs to for some people and probably set some people back further than they need to be. But that's an ongoing conversation that I have with people all the time. Yeah. I mean, if, if it were me and I got that diagnosis, I'd want everything because, because yeah. I'd want it, because I want to put it in, <laughs> I'd, I'd want to put it in remission and, yeah. and yeah. whatever gives me the best chances to do so. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to use that rather than, rather yes. than like gradually apply things over yep. time just to keep only intensify it as you don't, achieve success, right? That doesn't yeah. make as much sense. <laughs> right. Yes. Yep. Cool. Well, Hey man, that's a wrap. This has been episode 174. You got anything else you want to throw out there? Nothing else for this time. I think my All right. blood pressure part two article is going to be coming out soon. That's yes. Can confirm. Uh, that'll be up likely this Friday. Speaking of Friday, again, all of our new apparel will be up. Uh, and we're shipping internationally. So if, if you live outside the United States and you've been waiting on some BBM swag to come your way, this is your chance. Also on the website, we have our Lift for Life collaboration. That is the philanthropy we uh, work with. It's also Load Women Month. So I put that in the link in the description below. That's Claire Zai and Alyssa Olenix. Uh Now, uh, this is their second annual run with that where they uh, raise money for women in science and women in sport. Also, our app is live in the Apple App Store and the latest update once that's pushed through by Apple. Uh, you'll be able to check out all of our templates the first week of it. Try it on for size. Uh, so that way you know what you're getting into. 
Uh, but yep, this has been episode 174, the March 2022 Research Review Podcast here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast Series, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Big shout out to Dr. Austin Baraki, the second most handsome doctor in North America, for joining me, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum, on this week's podcast. We'll catch you guys next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you.